All of you, we have been discussing the exclusivity of the church for several sermons now in this series that I've been doing, and we began in the first sermon by identifying the 144,000 of Revelation 7 and 14. And I want to make a comment to begin with here that I am not pursuing this subject out of intellectual curiosity about who they might be or simply as a speculative issue. I feel that the information that is coming here is pretty much provable by scripture and by recent events in the church. You'll see what I mean in a little bit. If we do not understand what is happening in the church and who is who now, we are in danger of missing out on God's who is who of the resurrection. Now it was never proved fully accepted or even believed by everyone in the Church of God in years past. The general belief in the Worldwide Church of God over the years was that the Herbert W. Armstrong era was essentially the Philadelphia era. And once the numbers in that particular era of the church reached about 144,000 converted people, the church would then be whisked off to a place of safety and live happily ever after. In other words, WCG was Philadelphia, was 144,000. The Laodiceans would be left behind in the tribulation and be the innumerable multitude washed right in tribulation and also be in the first resurrection but would have a lesser job than the Philadelphians. They would not be pillars, it was surmised, but they would sit on the throne. Some even began to think that that was higher than the pillars of Philadelphia, because the pillars sort of supported the church or the temple, but that the Laodiceans would sit on the throne with Christ. Now these ideas went around and around. It sounds, when you look at it like this, like who will be on your right hand and who will be on your left hand? Are the Philadelphians better or are the Laodiceans better? Of course, very few really wanted to be Laodiceans, so it's quite easy to, in our own minds, place ourselves as Philadelphians and others as Laodiceans. Now, there are a few moments of truth in all this, very few. What actually happened? Is it? Was it? So? Well, the church never reached 144,000 converted people. We may have had 150,000 at some of the feasts, but that included children who were unconverted, unconverted mates, tares, even grandma who came with a family to visit. So there were nowhere near that many converted people. Then the numbers declined rapidly and are still declining. So the way that we sort of generally had it doped out was wrong. There is still no 144,000 headed for a place of safety, and it appears a very unlikely prospect that such will occur. All the virgins, the whole church, slumbered and slept. Philadelphia also. All. Not everyone but my group, quote unquote. No one can point the finger. All means every last one. What to say? 
including me. I believe some are waking up now, and some are still snoozing on, unperturbed. Some think they are wide awake and okay, but the rest are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, we're not going to consider ourselves that way, are we? By nature. But it's easy to say, well, I've waked up, I'm awake, but the rest are way to see us. That's a very easy trap to fall into. It is also an attitude and a recipe for disaster. Now, what has and is happening, as opposed to what we thought might happen, is Ezekiel 5, the spiritual scattering, as a forerunner of what will occur in the nation very shortly now. We have dead and dying spiritually, sick spiritually, and in captivity of Babylon spiritually. Let's turn to Zechariah 13 and see this. It's an end-time prophecy. And... Uh, puts an exclamation point on Ezekiel 5 in that sense. Zechariah 13, and in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. So God's anger is being visited on us. We've seen this over and over again in Lamentations and in Hosea and many other places in the Bible. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, says the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. Now this is talking about the little ones in the flock. This isn't necessarily talking about the nation, but it's easily applied to the church. The third part shall be left therein, and I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. We saw that in, what is it, 1 Corinthians 3. We see that in the book of Revelation. God is going to, to try us, to refine us, to prepare us. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. So this is converted people. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. So we're going through a fire of tribulation, a fire of refining right now, being prepared. And the flock is certainly scattered. This will continue until not one living stone is on top of another, Matthew 24, 2, in whatever way God defines that. It is continuing unabated, and every signal we're getting right now is that the scattering is not diminishing, but it is intensified. So that theory of Philadelphia, Laodicea, being 144,000 and the innumerable multitude has been proven wrong, really wrong. We saw in part one that the 144,000 are the totality of the first fruits. This includes the Old Testament members from Hebrews 11 and the New Testament converts from Christ to his return when the final exact number of 144,000 is reached and sealed. Brethren, we must understand that all the church is being spewed out, not just the remnant of the sins who will be left behind. All swept and became Laodicean in attitude. 
All seven of the attitudes of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are here extant today. All of the promises of Revelation 2 and 3 are for all of the first fruits. This is important to understand that each of the promises God gives to each of those groups as they repent and overcome is cumulative as it progresses through the seven eras. Those Things that we inherit, that we become, are given to whom? To the overcomers out of each group. All seven eras are first fruits. The Ephesian era was first fruits. All the eras have had first fruits. Paul was in the Ephesian era, he said he was a first fruit. And the first fruits, as we saw in Revelation 13, 4, are 144,000. So 144,000 can't be the last era of the church defined as Philadelphia, or the next to the last, during the Herbert Armstrong era. Doesn't fit. They receive the same inheritance, it's just that they had different problems and areas to overcome. Now, when this scattering is finished, the Bible makes it very clear, and I won't go through all the scriptures on that, we've seen them before. A remnant will be gathered from all who were called. For well, it seems the predominant attitude was Philadelphia through most of the Herbert Armstrong era, at least until 1969 and on. He felt that the Laodicean era began to make its appearance as early as 1969 and grew and grew and grew from there until today it is the permanent attitude. And think about this. There is an awful lot of you are naked, I am not going on in the greater church of God today. I am Philadelphia, you are Laodicea. Those statements are being made. My group is Philadelphia, yours is Laodicea. I am Philadelphia, the rest of you are Laodicea. We've all heard these. We've all seen them in print. Maybe some of us have uttered them. It reminds me of the Pharisee and the publican. Well, I'm Philadelphia. You are Laodicea. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. He who exalts himself shall be abased. That's a promise from Almighty God. We need to be very, very careful and lifting ourselves up and saying that we are in better spiritual condition than anyone else. You know what that does? That automatically switches you to the other attitude, to the Laodicean attitude. Because suddenly you are comparing yourself with others, and you feel that you are above others, by being Philadelphian while they are mere Laodiceans. Now let's consider also some thoughts here. I don't know that I can pin them down exactly. But there seem to be several types or fulfillments of the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3. First, I think it's quite obvious that the seven churches existed as local congregations in Asia Minor and the Middle Circuit in the first century. They were congregations of the Church of God. That may have been, or probably was, the first fulfillment. Secondly, I think we have understood that the seven churches existed as eras through the next 2,000 years from the time the church was established until today. 
and that in this end time, for the last 100 to 200 years, we have seen three of them at least. Sardis, whom Mr. Armstrong came in association with and then departed from, and then 50 or so years or 60 or whatever you, however you want to count it, the Philadelphia under Herbert Armstrong, and then we moved into the Laodicean era, which is the prominent era today, and is the last of the seven. The Laodicean church caught us all and is predominant. We are all being spewed. Now, God is not happy with any of us. You, me, them, all of us. That is imperative that we understand. Now let's thirdly consider that all seven churches exist as attitudes today. Now we may be in the final era in the sense of the second fulfillment we talked about, the Laodicean, but all seven churches exist as attitudes today. The Laodicean is the most prominent attitude today. Comparing ourselves among ourselves is not wise, therefore God is humbling us, scattering us, chastening us. And you see all seven of these attitudes here and there through the church? If I read Revelation 2 and 3, honestly, clearly, I can see all seven of the negative attitudes in myself. Sometimes some are more prominent, sometimes others are more prominent, are more prominent, but I have to be repenting of everything in there. Because I have parts of every one of those. So they all seven exist, at least in me. You have to analyze whether it exists in you or not. Didn't Paul say he was the chiefest of sinners? I might have an argument with him. I feel I am. Not that we want to get blamed about how bad we are. Because that's all spiritual pride too. Oh, woe well, is me. Another subject. Alright, now let's look at a fourth possibility of a fulfillment of the seven church errors. Let's go back to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. And verse 9. He's talking here about a millennial setting for physical Israel and very possibly for the time when it's time for the place of safety to occur. Chapter 41, verse 19. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar the shiva tree, the myrtle, the oil tree, I will set in the desert, the fir, the pine, the box tree all together. So all seven trees, seven churches, God is going to plant in the wilderness. I take it to mean, uh, and there's scriptures that I think we can follow up to back this up very easily, because the place of safety will be in a wilderness area, a desert area, a mountainous area. So he's going to plant the seven churches in the wilderness. Jeremiah 31.22 is interesting in this light. Jeremiah 31, verse 22. How long will you go about, O you backsliding daughter? We're the daughters of Zion. And he refers to us as daughters. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now normally, men go out as suitors of women and chase women until they catch one, or chase her till she catches you, or however it works. 
But that's the normal way of doing it. God says, I'm going to turn this around. This is going to be different. All seven churches, as we're going to see right now as we go back to Isaiah 4, are going to do a new thing. Now, Isaiah 3 talks about the daughters of Zion, the church, being knocked flat, punished greatly because of what? Attitudes of vanity, of ego, of self-importance and self-centeredness as expressed in dress and makeup and so on here apparently. And God says he is going to humble. Our mighty men will fall, verse 25. The ministry, the elders are going to fall. And her gates shall lament, verse 26, and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. Now here's the new thing. And in that day, seven women, or seven churches, shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So as God scatters the church, the organizations, one by one, are going to begin to disappear, apparently. They won't have a name anymore. Scattered to the wind. Scattered to their living rooms. But the new thing is, seven will take hold of one. So we have here what looks like a future type of the seven churches. Now this is when unity begins to occur. Go to Zechariah 11. I won't turn back there and read all of this, but it talks about beauty and bands, or as they could be translated and should be probably, grace and unity. Probably the two witnesses is what it's talking about here as the churches continue to be scattered, and that's all the old uh, context of Zechariah 11 is more churches and shepherds being scattered. But God, through the witnesses, is going to bring grace and unity. We can see that again back in, in Jeremiah 31, where we just were. I'll turn back there briefly. Verse uh, 2 of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Same context, same setting we've been talking about. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. So spiritual Israel is going to have a rest, place of safety, security, under the direction of Jesus Christ is what that's talking about. So the grace, the favor of God, is going to be returned to us in the wilderness. Apparently not too much until that occurs. Not that we don't receive some food during famine, but the real grace of God will return then and under the direction of the two witnesses. And also unity. Ezekiel 34. I'll turn to one scripture on each of these. There are many on both subjects, but just enough to show that there is scriptural uh, reason per se. Ezekiel 34, verse 23, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. One leader, one ruler, one king. And here again, probably one of the witnesses is a type of David. Of course, David himself will come back, be resurrected to be over all Israel in the millennium. But this is talking about the unity of the church. So you have one flock, one fold, one leader, and you have unity again in the wilderness. This we must understand, lest we compare ourselves with others. We think we're okay, and maybe miss out. That is the meat and bones 
of why I'm giving this series, not just to speculate on numbers or who this is and who that is, but to show that it is important to understand who is who. This is a time, brethren, for great alertness for our own sins, not the sins in others. We begin to see why it is so important to know who the 144,000 really are, as opposed to feeling comfortable in our opinion that we are Philadelphia and others are Laodiceans. That is a mindset that will get us in trouble and keep us in trouble. This mindset is causing more comparison and more division, not less. Again, in the first sermon of this series, we established that the 144,000 of Revelation is the first fruits and the entirety of the first resurrection. They are the early harvest at Christ's coming, and everyone else is in his order after that. Now, this is shown in the Holy Day sequence, with others attaining salvation in the millennium, as pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles, and others in the Great White Throne Judgment, as pictured in the last great day. These two groups constitute the great all harvest, Herbert Armstrong often talked about. That's the way he said it. A good reason for understanding who the 144,000 are is because many are called, few are chosen. Herbert Armstrong was an instrument to call many, and now it appears God is sifting the few from that number to be chosen to finish out the 144,000. So if you're in the middle of a sifting situation, you better be aware of it. If you think that you're Philadelphia and not being sifted, then you're in danger of being sifted because of spiritual pride. It was not critical that Herbert Armstrong understand the 144,000 because he was the calling agent of the end time church. The choosing is now. Knowing who is who is important now. And he changed on what he thought about the 144,000 and innumerable multitude several times, and it was never fully really nailed down. It is important for us to understand that the number is finite. There are only so many. You cannot suppose you will be chosen simply because you warm a chair in any one of the Daughters of Zion or your own living room. The qualifications are severe. The gate and way are straight and narrow. Now let's briefly review the 144,000 and add some detail that we didn't do before and answer some questions before moving on to the innumerable multitude. To do this, let's go back and begin in Revelation 14. Revelation 14. And uh, let's pick it up again in verse 14, we, I mean verse 1. We did go over some of this, but there are several things in the context that we did not cover, and several questions have been asked since then about, well, what about such and such and such and such, and I would like to cover those because it will help our overall understanding before we get on with the subject here. Uh, let's begin in verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion with him, a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So, first of all, they are with Christ. They had risen to meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and come down with him to ever be with the Lord. 
Now notice in verse 3, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man, not any man, not one man, no one else, could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. The saints who were there to rule with Christ sung the new song. Now, if there was anyone else in the first resurrection, other than 144,000, wouldn't they feel really bad not being able to sing along with everyone else, with the bride? Now, here's the bride, 144,000, which clearly is shown in Revelation 21. They can sing these new songs, but here are these other people that sort of got in there somehow, and they can't sing it. I, I would hate to be in a situation right here in this room where uh, you people all got up to sing the final hymn and you made me go outside. I couldn't sing with you. Terrible to be there and not be able to sing. I promise I'll sing quiet. Just let me stay. Yeah, I don't promise that either. I tend to sing lustily. I mean, loudly. Now notice verse 4, some other characteristics of these. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. What does that mean? Some people have thought that these were all ten-year-olds, I guess, so they were all virgins. It's not what it's talking about. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 11, and we can see very quickly and very clearly what it means by virgins. 2 Corinthians 11. Oops, I turned past it. 2 Corinthians 11. Now, who is Paul writing to in 2 Corinthians? He's writing to one of the most hedonistic, sinful, self-centered, uh, blasphemous, adulterous, fornicating groups of people that probably society has ever known. Maybe not quite as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, but you could certainly mention them in the same breath. The Temple of Diana and the temple prostitutes were there, and people went to the temple to uh, eat the meat, which was offered, you know, I got kind of the businessman's lunch. You could go and eat cheap meat just offered to idols because they didn't have refrigeration, they need to sell it now. And uh, you could have tea martinis or some wine, and then you could pick out the girl you wanted. Kind of a modern-day what we call a businessman's lunch. Now, that's the people that Paul is talking to in Corinthians. Would to God, verse 1, you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband. That is, he brought them along, baptized them, laid hands on them, received, they received the Holy Spirit through him, through his aegis. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So these sinful, adulterous, divorced and remarried, polygamous Corinthians are going to be made virgins. Now there's a trick for you. You know, in our physical realm, once you're not a virgin, you aren't a virgin. But God can return us to the pristine state through repentance, through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm going to present you Corinthians as virgins to Jesus Christ. 
Well, that's what it means back here in Revelation 14. Made virgins. Now, where was I here in my notes? I could also refer you to Ephesians 5, which you're quite familiar with. It's talking about marriage there. And it says that the husband is supposed to present his wife without spot or without wrinkle. Does that mean that he's supposed to uh, give her a facelift? No, her character is supposed to be improved and increased and aided and abetted by her husband so that by the time Christ returns, the husband has helped her become a proper bride for Christ. So if she was spotted and wrinkled by this world, then she has to be cleansed and purified and spiritually made pure. Ezekiel 16 is the same way. There was uh, the bride of Christ described in all of her filth and all of her sin, and Jesus Christ washed her, cleansed her, prepared her, and presented herself in the terms of first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 as a bride, clean, pure, righteous virgin to Jesus Christ. I take great hope in this, because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Christ is able to bring us to purity and virginity no matter what we've been. Now, let's see. Uh, going on in verse 3 here. It says at the end of verse 3 in chapter 14 of Revelation, it says, These were redeemed from the earth. Then you go down into uh, <coughs> verse 4, and about the middle of the verse, it says, These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits. So these people are made virgins. They are also redeemed from the earth. What does redeemed mean? Now, this will be important when we get back to Revelation 7. What does redeemed mean? It means bought or purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Hebrews 9 and see this very clearly stated. <coughs> Hebrews 9, verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered, into one, entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So he redeemed us by his own blood. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the puring of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions, so we weren't virgin in sin, we had transgressed. Now we're under the First Testament. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now if we are called and converted, notice here he says we have the promise of eternal inheritance. We'll see this more clearly defined in a moment. So being redeemed, and getting back to Revelation 14, is tied to singing the new song. These, only these people can sing the new song, we read that, and only the 144,000 are redeemed, saved, glorified. 
in the first resurrection. This is very exclusive. We shall see. The innumerable multitude has to come later in the story. They have to be some time after the first resurrection. You may object to that at the moment, and I know exactly what your objections are, but we'll get to that. Now, others have said that there could be no women in the 144,000. Sorry, ladies. Because it says they are not defiled with women. So it had to be men who are not defiled with women. What does that mean? Well, Sarah and Rahab were included in the first fruits, weren't they? Hebrews 11. And it says these are the first fruits. So there are women there. Good news, ladies. Women is spiritually symbolic, again, of churches, not defiled with false doctrine. Now, you can have been defiled with false doctrine in the past, and maybe you were defiled with it in worldwide recently, but once you get away from it, it's like becoming virgin again. You're undefiled once you repent of that and get rid of that. I can prove it's not speaking about the physical very easily. The first fruits listed in Hebrews 11 were not physical virgins. Was Abraham a virgin? Nope. Nor were the apostles, some of whom were married. Hebrews 13:4, which I'll not turn to, but you know very well, says marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. So having sex with your wife does not defile you. Sex and marriage is good and honorable and wonderful. So this is talking about spiritual defilement which has been removed. Now verse 5, uh, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Their sins have been forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west. When does this occur? The time of, of uh, the resurrection, the time Christ returns. Now let's understand a very critical point here about the first resurrection and these 144,000. Their judgment at this point is complete. Done. Finished. Judgment is now on spiritual Israel. Judgment is right now on you and me. Not at the return of Christ. That is when our sentence is passed. We either stay in the grave till the third resurrection, or we stay on the ground. That's when sentence is passed on us. Once we rise in the air, our sentence is complete, our judgment is complete, and our sentence is given. That is, if we qualify and we are chosen, we rise to meet Christ in the air. When we meet him, he doesn't pass another judgment on us. Our judgment is now, our sentence is then, and it was either good or bad. And once you become spirit, you are spirit. And he can't say, once you get up there, well, I think I'll boot you out. No, you're already spirit. It's too late for that. They are without fault at this point. Clean, undefiled. Now let's understand that the sorting of the sheep and goats at Christ's coming does not include the first fruits. Sentence is passed one way or the other on the first fruits at that point, 
They either rise or they don't rise. Once the sealing of Revelation 7 is complete, we are judged worthy. When we're resurrected, we're changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Our judgment is over. Now let's examine that for a moment about the sheep and the goats of Matthew 25. I'll turn back there so we're familiar. Matthew 25 is talking about the time when Christ comes in verse 27 as the lightning comes out of the east and shines to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So the setting here is the return of Christ. Uh, verse 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the angels will gather his first fruits, the ones in the first resurrection to him, to, and rise to meet him in the air, and they will ever be with him from that point on. So then who is it talking about when it says he'll sort the sheep from the goats? Let's see that in Matthew 24. We're right here. Uh, oh, wait a minute. I just read that one, didn't I? Let's go to Matthew 25, 31 now. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So this isn't talking about spiritual Israel who has just been resurrected and is now with Christ, reigning with him. This is talking about all nations, the people who were not converted, who did not have an opportunity of salvation. At that moment, it would include all those who survived tribulation at the end of the age and live physically into the millennium. Now, it isn't a matter as the Protestants picture of Christ sitting on a throne and suddenly he says, all right, let's start over here on the left. Uh, you to the right, you to the right, you left, 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 right, right, right. That isn't the way God gives judgment. It's not the way he gives judgment on you and me, is it? He's turning the tape over here. I guess I missed a little bit. But God does not give you and I, or you and me, judgment like that. You're a goat, you're a sheep. No. Over a period of time in our spiritual life, from the time of conversion, he gives us a chance to overcome, a chance to grow, a chance to judge our hearts and our minds, a chance to change, a chance to become more like him, to come to think like him, to don the garments of righteousness. If he judged us as soon as we were converted as a sheep or a goat, we'd be in deep trouble. It was an instant judgment. But it's not. It's over a lifetime. And the same judgment will be done in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Yes, it is a matter of separating the sheep and the goats, but Christ does that over a period of their whole lifetime. When they come up in the great white throne judgment, they will have been sinners in this life. Well, they will be raised to physical life, and over a period of time, perhaps a hundred years, he will begin to sort them left and right as to whether they'll be part of his kingdom or not. So it's not like the Protestants picture it at all. What I'm saying then is there is no group of people whom Christ immediately passes sentence on to salvation or death when he returns, except that he has passed sentence on the judgment he made in our lives 
to make us part of his kingdom. Judgment takes time. Now, that's, here's another question that has come up. Are there two groups of 144,000? This I did not realize until more recently, and I've heard several people bring it up. It's a fairly common belief that the, rebel, the 144,000 of Revelation 7 are 12,000 physical people from the physical tribes of Israel, and that they live through tribulation at the end of the age, into the millennium, and that they are the ones whom God uses as perhaps leaders, I don't know exactly what the thought is, uh, to help establish uh, his government in the millennium. But they're simply physical Israelites, 12,000 Jews, 12,000 Gadites, 12,000 of Asher, 12,000 of Joseph, or, or of Manasseh, 12,000 of Ephraim, and so on. Now, is this so? Uh, in Revelation 14, then, it's obvious that those are converted people, so people think that they're two separate groups. In other words, a total of 288,000, not 144,000. Fairly common belief. Where is any scriptural indication of this, other than what we just said? Well, Revelation 14, I think, is pretty plainly, clearly stated that those are the first fruits, the first resurrection. It says it right there in Revelation 14, 4, in exactly so many words, no equivocation, no wiggle room. These are the first fruits. So now let's, let's look at Revelation 7 and see if we can determine whether or not these are one and the same, or whether there are two groups, these in Revelation 7 being physical Israelites. Let's ask a logical question first. Why would there be a need for a physical government of 144,000 Israelites? What has Christ been doing these 6,000 years but preparing a people for himself, preparing rulers, preparing teachers, as Isaiah 30-21 says, they'll see their teachers. Christ has been preparing the faithful, faithful first fruits from Adam till now to rule righteously in the millennium as what? As spirit beings, kings, priests, teachers. One might rule a city, one might rule five cities, one might rule ten cities. That's part of the reward in the kingdom of God. 144,000 are a perfect governmental number, 12 squared. His government is established through them, and David is king over all Israel, and the 12 apostles over each of the 12 tribes. We've covered that. But uh, that's the government. That's represented in Jerusalem as the holy city, the bride of Christ. He makes it very clear. They will be the kings and priests, the rulers, and the world of love. So what do you need 144,000 physical Israelites for, except maybe to have each tribe represented? That's just a question. Now, we'll get to more of that as we go in here. But notice now in Revelation 7, <coughs> um, let's begin in verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Is this a fur seal? Or what is this? The seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God 
in their foreheads. which were sealed, and they were sealed, and 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, and then it names them. Let's examine first what sealed means. Uh, I'll turn to 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. I think the, the obvious sealing, or what the seal mean, means to set aside... Uh, are listed, protected. The letters in the book of Revelation were sealed, just and, and only Christ could break the seal and could open and read them. They were hidden. They were protected. They were kept away from. And in this case, they apparently are kept away from physical trouble, but there's more to it than that. Only Christ can open the seals of Revelation. He's everyone qualified to and give the orders that are there. Now let's consider that he says we now are sealed. Where does it say that? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> and verse 22. Who has also sealed us and has given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts? Paul is talking to the converts of the Corinthian church, saying, God has sealed us and give us the earnest of the Spirit. Are we spirit yet? Or do we just have the earnest of the Spirit? We're begotten of the Spirit of God, and we have the seal of God upon us. We have the nature of God being formed in us. And once we are begotten of God, we have God's name stamped on us. I got a call this past week from one of my sons, whose wife just had a miscarriage this week. And they were obviously very upset about it and frustrated over the whole circumstance, because that child had the seal of its parents. It had been begotten of a father and a mother, and it was growing. And when it was born, it would be very much like my son and his wife. Just as my children are very much like me. Please pray for my children. But they have my seal upon them. To some degree, their voices, their physiognomy, their personalities, their quirks are partly responsible, or I'm partly responsible for it. Not totally. They have, you know, they, they have their own responsibility and accountability. They won't answer for my sins, they will answer for their sins, as Ezekiel, I think, is 18 shows very clearly. But they have my seal. Now the beast and the false prophet have their seal. They will seal people in the forehead and on the hand of their wrist. There's been a lot of speculation as to what that means. But it means they give themselves over to and have the mark of that beast, which is, number one, Sunday keeping. But that is a financial institution, financial and power. And that's why it is important for us not to be double-minded. 
because those who accept the seal of the beast, the mark of the beast, are identified with the beast. And when Christ puts his seal or his mark on his people, he tells the angels who are coming to destroy people on the earth not to touch those. And it's by the seal of God that the recognition comes. Is it a physical seal? Does, does, does God Christ come down and send an angel and stamp us in the forehead? Does the beast? Not necessarily. How do they recognize who is who? Well, angels and demons are spirit beings who can essentially read minds and know what's in your head. I've had people with demons recognize me, including my name and who I, rec who I represented. Ambassador College, years ago in Florida, in fact. Walked up and knocked on the door. I hadn't called ahead. I just had some extra time. I was in the area visiting others. I had their address and had had it for a year or so, I guess. Had never called them, had never written them. Went up and knocked on the door. The door opened. Somebody said, oh, I know you. You're Darrell Winston from Ambassador College. I nearly jumped through the trees to get back to the car. Well, I stood there and talked for a minute to determine you know, what really was going on here. I didn't have an AC jumper on. I didn't have a seal in my forehead that said I was from Ambassador College. The spirit of the demon recognized God's spirit in me. Just like that. I had the seal of God, the seal of the spirit, the promise of becoming spirit someday. And they could recognize that. Now, when the government seals or approves a side of beef, somebody has, you've seen the, the stamps on meat, they come in with this, this, uh, this sealer that has, I think it's blue, and they reach up on the rump about half a beef and they seal it. Make a mark right there on the rump. Now that's not where God seals us. He doesn't come around looking at our backsides to see if we're his or not. It's the mind, the forehead, the eyes. That's how God and his angels can recognize us. Is Christ living in there? Is the Holy Spirit of God alive, well, and working in this individual? Or has the spirit been quenched and about died out? And is this person about to become a spiritual abortion because they're asleep spiritually? These are big important questions for you and me today. If we're to be one of the chosen ones. So when God's angels look in your eyes, do they see a dollar sign in one eye and a lamb or a dove of God in the other eye to just pick a symbol? If so, you're double-minded, because you've got materiality as one of your goals that's in your mind and heart and eyes, and you have God in the other. And God says you can't serve God and mammon. You must serve one or the other. And the beast will try to get you to serve their financial empire because it is a worldwide empire, and that's where they want you, keeping Sunday and being filled with materialism and hedonism. That's their seal. Which will God find in us? Now, while we're in 2 Corinthians, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. It'll add another word to what we're talking about here. For now that he that has wrought us for the self same thing is God, 
who also has given to us the earnest of the Spirit. What is the earnest of the Spirit? When you decide to buy a house or a piece of real estate, you put down earnest money. You write them a check for 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 or $10,000, depending on how big the deal is, and that shows a serious commitment to buy that property. So when God begets us with his Holy Spirit, he gives us earnest money to show that he is serious about making us part of his kingdom. He gives us his Holy Spirit as begetter. Are we serious about it? That's why we count the cost before we're baptized. That's why we answer a lot of questions about how serious we are about this. Because God is deadly serious about this. Once he gives us that earnest, he expects to make the purchase through Jesus Christ's blood. To finish the purchase in glory. Not just give us earnest and then ignore us and go away and forget about his earnest money. He shed that blood. He cast his bread upon the waters, and he expects a return. And he will keep our feet to the fire until he sees the attitude in us he desires. Because he is serious about this. So he is in earnest, and we have the earnest of his spirit. Now let's go to John 3. John 3. And pick it up in uh, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We can have the Spirit, we can have the earnest of the Spirit, we can have the promise of salvation, but we are still flesh. I won't take the time to go to 1 Corinthians 15 and show this, but Paul spends quite a little time explaining but that which is flesh is flesh, and that we will bear the image of the heavenly, that we now bear the image of the earthly, and so on. And that is not new knowledge. We understand that. So let's move on uh, to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. And verse 13. In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Notice how many words Paul puts together here to describe the first fruits who were inclusive of the Ephesians. He calls them sealed, promised, earnest money, and the redemption of the purchased possession. This is interesting because it ties sealing and redemption together in two verses. That also ties first, uh, Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 together because you have redemption mentioned twice in Revelation 14 and you have sealing mentioned at least twice, maybe more, in Revelation 7. So these people, these 144,000, are tied together. They are not separate. The final seal 
of Revelation there where it says, wait up, hold up until I finish the sealing, is when the delivery on the promise is made. Now the promise was made when you were begotten, right after you became a gleam in your father's eye. But when you were born, is when the delivery is, and they even call it the delivery of a baby. When we are born into God's kingdom is the delivery. That's the time when we get the full seal. We were sealed, given earnest money, given a promise, but that's the time that the promise is delivered, the time that it's given. So as soon as he finishes sealing these, he turns the angels of destruction loose, as he says there in Revelation 7, but these are protected. And they are protected by being turned immortal, because that is speaking of the time as all those events culminate when Jesus Christ will return, and in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, they will be changed. Hebrews 11:39 says that all these, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Isaac, all these died not having received the promise, not given the glorification before us. So it all happens at once. The whole 144,000 are raised at once. Now let's go to Ephesians 4. <clears throat> this is a good one. Verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So the sealing has to do with redemption. Seal of the Spirit. Here again, this ties Revelation 7 and Revelation 4. 14 together. It ties the promise, the earnest, the sealing. It ties redemption and inheritance or glorification. So finishing the sealing involves both the number of those sealed and the delivery on the promise. He completes the number in Revelation 7, and he also delivers on his promise, giving them his causing them to become spirit, not just have his spirit at his return. Let's see that proved in Luke 21, Luke 21, and verse 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, if you get down here, he's talking about the return of Christ. Verse 25, there shall be signs in the sun and the moon, and men's hearts failing them for fear, and so on. The earth will be shaken, the heavens shaken. They shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory in verse 27. And when these things begin to come to pass, in verse 28, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. So the redemption is at the return of Christ, when we are actually redeemed from the earth. We're no longer tied to the earth. We rise to meet Christ in the air above the earth. That's when the redemption is made complete. We're forgiven now. We're put under a state of grace now through the blood of Christ. But the delivery on the promise is not until then. Now, where am I on time here? So, let's see. I got away from my notes. I'll have to get back here now. Uh, Revelation 9, verse 4. Let's go there just for a moment. Revelation 9 and verse 4. Now, this is interesting during the middle of the woes and the, the seals of God. In verse 4 he says, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, 
but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. So he said, I'm going to seal 144,000. Anyone else, any other human being, is fair game. You can kill them, you can destroy them, and we'll see some numbers a little later on. So there are others in the first resurrection. Everyone that's not sealed, anyone apart from the 144,000, is fair game to the destroying angels. You'd better be, and I had better be, one of the 144,000. Now let's ask another question. Why are they numbered by tribe? The apostles rule over the twelve tribes, as we saw in Matthew 19.28. says, you will rule over the twelve tribes, and that is the governmental number of the bride. Now, we were likely placed spiritually in those tribes in Revelation 7, as God organizes his government. Whether or not we are physically of Judah, Gad, Ephraim, is not key to this. The key is where God places a spiritual Israelite. Which tribe? in this 144,000, under which apostle that individual will work. <laughs> now this is easily proved, first of all, by the fact that the 12 apostles were not all physically from the tribe they were ruled over, but are reckoned spiritually by tribe and the government. There were several pairs of brothers. There was Simon the Canaanite. They were mostly Jews, Levites, or possibly Benjamites. The other tribes were not even represented in the Twelve Apostles. So God is going to put them over a tribe, and they become Reuben, or Gad, or Ephraim, or however he assigns those Twelve Apostles to the Twelve Tribes. So it's a spiritual reckoning, not a matter of blood here, beyond being physical Israelites or grafted in it, uh, Gentiles, which we will see in just a moment. All Twelve Tribes could not possibly have been physically represented in these Twelve Men. Now, the Gentiles will also be included in this number. People have thought they had to be all physical Israelites. We will see very quickly here, but that simply is not so. The Gentiles are grafted into spiritual Israel. Romans 11, read it for yourself. I won't go back and go through it. We've been through it a lot recently. And therefore, they're placed in a particular tribe based on their abilities as God desires. Gentiles are represented in Hebrews 11 as firstfruits. They are reckoned among Israel. Rahab, for one. Paul included many Gentiles as firstfruits in his epistles. You can see it in 1 Corinthians 15. Check particularly verses 23 and 51 to 52. He's talking to Corinthians who will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Romans 16 says it in so many words. Romans 16, and verse 5, or four, 4 through 5. Here he says, Who have for my life laid down their own necks, under whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles, likewise greet the church that is in their house, the Gentiles' house, salute my well-beloved Ephenetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. Can you say it any plainer? Gentiles are included in the firstfruits who are the 144,000. Colossians 1, 
Colossians 1. And verse 13. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. He's talking to Colossians. These are physical Gentiles. Although there were Jews mixed, I'm sure, in, but generally a Gentile church. In whom we have redemption through his blood. So Gentiles are included among the redeemed of Revelation 14. Even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So the Gentiles are redeemed as well. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Verse 11. Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Yeah, that was their status. Verse 16 and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the stake of the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now notice verse 19. Now therefore you, Gentiles, are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. They are part of the house of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, who represent the building of the bride, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the Lord. So the Gentiles are part of the temple of God, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Could it get any clearer than that? Once crafted in, they are Israelites. Not physically, but that doesn't mean anything. Being sealed doesn't necessarily mean you're going to live physically. There are a lot of people who were sealed who were murdered. Paul, Stephen, I don't name a bunch of them. Being sealed didn't help them physically. Doesn't mean anything. There'll be people who are murdered, killed for what they believe in this end time. Some of them very, very righteous, first fruits. The sealing has to do with the Holy Spirit, and it has to do with glorification and redemption. Now, it also includes physical protection right there at the end, because God says, I'm going to seal these, and then you can turn loose the trouble on the world. But these, I'm going to simply change into spirit. And you can't do that anything to them. You can't hurt them at that point. So whether you're dead or alive, if you're sealed with the Spirit of God, you're protected forever and ever. It doesn't matter that those that could uh, destroy the body, but those who can destroy the soul. Uh, let's see now. Well, we're getting real close to the end of this, and I just came down to the point where in my notes I wrote the innumerable multitude. And I'd intended to get to that, but I thought it would be better to clarify, first of all, who the sealed, the redeemed, the earnest, the promise, and I was referring to, because God in the Bible puts those two groups of people together. You cannot separate the sealed from the redeemed. You can't separate those who have the earnest of the Spirit to physical Israelites. It has to all be one and the same. Speaking of the same group of people who are sealed of the Spirit of God. 
So we will wrap that up then for today and begin here, uh, getting on with the innumerable multitude, I, I think this time without question, in the next sermon, God willing. So this transmission is ended.